0: Welcome to this week's episode of our podcast series, SCI Care, What Really Matters? I'm Ruth Marshall, and I'm excited to be your host this week. In these podcasts, we've covered a lot. COVID-19, current knowledge and best practices, exiting the lockdown, implications for SCI care, challenges in the comprehensive management of people with SCI. Overcoming adversity after spinal cord injury, a psychology perspective. And we also have launched our accompanying bite size episodes. In each bite size episode, we invite a representative from one of the special interest groups. And so far, we have covered precautions exiting the lockdown, a consumer committee perspective challenges comprehensive management of SCI from an OT perspective, another one from a physiotherapist perspective, and one from the Quality of Life Special Interest Group. And we have been listened to by people in at least 41 countries at last count. So that's very exciting and it's a wonderful prelude to our upcoming conference. Today, I am joined with Professor David Berlewes. David is a long time friend and an ISCOS member from Melbourne, Victoria. He is a physiotherapist with the Victorian Respiratory Support Service and holds the University of Melbourne Chair in Physiotherapy at Austin Health. David was awarded his PhD in 2004 for his work that showed Acute cervical spinal cord injury can result in sudden and severe obstructive sleep apnea. These days, David leads an international team of research collaborators, students, and staff who examine the causes and treatments of sleep and breathing disorders in neuromuscular disease, especially spinal cord injury and motor neurone disease. His research encompasses respiratory physiology, sleep, health systems research, and clinical trials of therapy and care models. As well, David is giving the inaugural Anthony DiMarco Lecture for this year's ISCOS conference. This is why we have him on the show. Welcome, David.
1: Thank you, Uh, Ruth. It's delightful to be here.
0: So, Dave, thank you for joining us. I'd really like to delve deeper in the work that you do, and I'm really interested to know what caused you to be interested in sleep disordered breathing and sleep apnea.
1: So I got interested in this because of my my role in respiratory medicine. So many, many moons ago, I was the respiratory medicine physio at what was then the repatriation hospital before it merged with uh, the Austin. And most of my work was in chronic lung disease, those kind of things. But we also had the, the, the second digitized sleep laboratory in, in, in Australia and one of the first in the world. So we had um, this sleep lab, brand spanking new, down the end of the ward. And we had 17 people on non-invasive ventilation, primarily veterans, um, and mainly for things like kyphoscoliosis, um, lung resection for TB, those kind of things, so restrictive ventilatory defects. And I sort of took over that area of work and started to get interested in, in sleep and sleep studies, um, I read uh, there's a tome called uh, Kriger Rothen de Mint, which is everything one should ever know about physiology. It's got uh, sleep and sleep physiology. It's got all the stuff in there, the comparative physiology, comparing, you know, how birds sleep and about hemispheric sleep in aquatic mammals and all kinds of cool stuff. About that intersection between neurology and psychology and behavioural science—that is, and physiology—and it's really thick. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> so. I started. Re- I read all of that and then looked around at what we were doing with non-invasive ventilation at that stage. And this was well over twenty years ago, um, uh, when it was really in its infancy. In fact, it was an Australian uh, physio from Sydney uh Liz who first described NIV as a treatment for hypercapnic ventilatory failure in a in, in, in a paper. Hers and the French group's paper both came out at the same time. So it's always been something we we're interested in. And I went to my then uh sort of head of respiratory and sleep medicine, Rob Pierce, and said, This is going to be a big thing and I think you should create a job in this space. So he did. So I moved more out of respiratory medicine into that. Now, the Austin Hospital also has the Victorian Spinal Cord Service. So some of the people that started to appear in the sleep lab were people who were living with a spinal cord injury. And the thing was, they didn't hypoventilate. So on first flush, you would imagine that people who are tetraplegic, in particular, who are weak, should be under-breathing. Like, that's what you'd imagine if you just walked up to a sort of from face value. And the truth is, they weren't. When, when I first put together, I think, about our 23 patients or something, I could only identify that half of them, you know, people who had C4, Asian A lesions, were under breathing, which was really, really surprising. But what all of them did was collapse their upper airway. So every single one of them had obstructive sleep apnea. Some of them also underbreathed, but they all had sleep apnea. And I really liked anatomy at uni. Um, and I went, yeah, that's rubbish. Your upper airway is controlled by your spinal segmental nerves. There should be nothing about having a C5 lesion that stops your tongue from staying out of the way while you're asleep. So that's why I got interested, and that's why I, I then went to Doug. Brown, who was the head of the spinal unit at the time, and Rob Pierce, and I said, if you can find me a stipend, I'll give up working and become a full-time student and work this stuff out, because this is nonsense.
0: And of course, by then, the papers that I had been involved in, in particular, the paper that was published in Thorax in '95, were in the literature. And I know that that's what led us to start talking about the issues in acute. Because you'd read our paper, yeah,
1: yeah, no, absolutely. There was this, there was this paper from South Australia, which like, you were on. Um, there was a paper from
0: Debbie uh, Short.
1: Yep, Debbie Short in um, in in the UK. There was a paper from Switzerland, and there was Finn Sorensen's work. There were bits and bobs all over the shop that were papers in in prevalent populations that said, this seems weird, like we've got a really high population prevalence here. But but nothing about the anatomy explained to me, so what? It didn't make any sense. So that's why I started my PhD. And so my PhD was, as you say, in acute. So what I did was for uh, almost three years, I took every new person, well, we recruited for 18 months, but it took almost three years to 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 get all the data. Every new person who came into the sleep lab, uh, sorry, into the spinal unit at the Austin, I would do sleep studies on them as soon as I possibly could. So I did sleep studies on people in ICU with cervical injuries who were, you know, in one case, less than 24 hours after they had their injury. And then did studies again at two weeks, four weeks, so one month, Three months, six months, and twelve months, and showed that really as soon as you had control of your upper airway, so by by one month post injury, two-thirds of people, so sixty percent, over sixty percent, and it rose to over eighty percent at three months of the cohort had sleep apnea. So something about breaking your neck instantly causes your upper airway to not work right. Because these were, you know, young skinny guys in their twenties. And this was Extraordinary because none of us knew this before.
0: Until then, we'd been really looking in the chronic group and hadn't thought about looking at the acute group. But some of us were really aware that our patients got into trouble when they were started with one way CPAP and couldn't breathe out in intensive care. So it was a very timely and interesting study that you embarked on and that we all looked on and with interest, I have to say, and eventually you got your PhD, well-deserved, and you've done lots since. What have you been doing when you haven't been sort of drinking wine or eating good food?
1: Well, you know, those two things are very important, but as you say, I did that work, got my PhD, um, Got married, had twins, important things like that. My wife and I actually both uh, got our PhDs at the same ceremony, and she's such a rock star that she managed to um, actually finish her PhD in the, the first few months after our twin girls were born. So there's this great photo of, of her and I and, and the two girls um, with Anne and I in our regalia. It's one of my favourite photos. Like most people who do their PhD, particularly those of us from a clinical background, um, Australia, and and to be honest, I don't think many places in the world have cracked this. They don't really know what to do, particularly with allied health background health professionals. They don't really know what to do with this once we've got our PhDs. The unis pay better than the health service. So a lot of people just go off and and become uh, teaching and research academics, which is a great thing to do. But there's this real dearth of people with allied health and, um, and nursing backgrounds embedded in, in hospitals and in clinical care. So I didn't particularly want to teach. I'm not a very good teacher, I quite like supervising research higher degree students, but I'm not very, you know, my passion is not in teaching. So I then had to look around for a job. So, and of course, my PhD support money ran out. because, like everybody else, it takes too long and blah, blah, blah. So I got a job setting up a chronic disease research unit at a smaller hospital in Melbourne, at the Northern Hospital. And so what we did was we set up chronic disease research trials, but at that stage this was a very new hospital. So it didn't have things like quality rehab or home medication services or heart failure clinics and things like that. So we set up all these new clinics, but we set them all up prospectively as controlled trials. So we had this model where everybody who came into these chronic disease management programs kind of had three pathways to go down. They could either just get the service if they wanted it, or if they wanted to participate in the trial, they could be randomised to either continue with usual care, which at that stage wasn't the program, uh, versus being enrolled in, say, pulmonary rehab or better health self-management, so self-efficacy training, those kind of things. We kind of hacked the electronic medical record at the same time to generate a research data warehouse. So by the time I left, kind of three years ago, we had about 4,500 people enrolled into this health services research kind of practice and with data flowing into this data warehouse, which still occasionally pops out papers every now and then. So that's what I did. And then I was really lucky to get Grant money for some projects for primarily from the transport accident Commission to come back and do stuff in the spinal, so then I started doing research back in spinal cord injury and in the other areas that I'm really interested in, which are more general neuromuscular diseases and sleep and breathing and neuromuscular.
0: Wow, and along with you doing that, you've pulled along a whole pile of higher degree students, haven't you? So how do you approach that aspect of your work? You've just said you don't particularly like teaching.
1: No, I don't like undergraduate teaching. As you know, Bruce, um, I'm not very good at doing what I'm told. So I'm I'm, I'm not very good at kind of, you know, teaching to a curriculum and stuff like that. I've got a very short attention span. So I get a bit bored, to be perfectly honest. But I, I adore sitting around and being inspired by clever people. So that's what I feel like I get from having research higher degree students. I get these people who have the same kind of inquiry that I really respect and love. And I get to, you know, kind of hang out while they do really cool stuff. So I have had a few higher degree students. We We were all sort of really, really lucky and just in many ways in the right place at the right time with the right interests that the Transport Accident Commission in Victoria devoted a large amount of money to neurotrauma research. We were able to secure a a program grant, so five years worth of grant funding, which meant we could run a whole bunch of trials, we could do basic respiratory physiology, and so that capacity from getting those grants meant that we also had a whole bunch of students. I was in preparation for this chat. I pulled up my CD and had a look at, at my students. And I have had people working on early mobilisation on medical inpatients. So that was my, my kind of time at the Morton. So Nat de Morton there invented a the scale and sort of quantified this kind of usual decline in function that you see when you put an older person into a general medical ward and what we can do about it. We then started doing a whole bunch of the spinal stuff. We also did some oxygen work in COPD. One of my favourite projects was one that Jeanette Tamplin did. who's a music therapist. So I I was brought on to add muscle stuff to it. And and Jeanette had observed, in particular, a a gentleman named Tim who uh, has a C5 lesion and who sings opera like nobody's business. And so what we did was we got Tim in and we put dots all over him to look at, at how he activated his, um, his accessory muscles to generate such high sound pressure levels. We had this really cool microphone that could record sound pressure levels and an acoustic engineer. And we looked at the way that he used kind of reversed origin and insertion to use his arm muscles to belt out this opera. Because we thought that, you know, maybe we could learn what he did so we could teach others. Now, of course, we didn't find that. But what we did do was then run a randomised controlled trial of singing as respiratory muscle training in spinal cord injury and showed that while the effect size is smaller than with respiratory muscle training, It's far more enjoyable and, you know, as a strategy for getting people to improve their respiratory muscle strength, it's probably not rubbish. It's really quite cool. Jeanette's gone on and done all kinds of cool stuff now. In fact, her and I are still collaborating on a project where we're trying to replicate this in VR because, of course, there's a translational problem with having to get people, even outside COVID restrictions, be able to attend to a um, singing class. So we're trying to replicate this online and dealing with, Technology is not hugely dissimilar to what we're doing using now to do remote recording and pooling of voices and stuff like that. Wow, we've done cool stuff around upper airway physiology. Um, had these amazing folk with high spinal lesions that were willing for me to put needles in their tongues and and catheters down their throat to measure pressure and 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 muscle activity and look at their brain activation and them in magnetic resonance imaging machines and look at how their tongues move during, during breathing and what their neurocognitive function's like and how it relates to sleep, disorder, breathing and stuff. I've been incredibly, incredibly lucky to have these amazing students who've done all this really cool discovery work, like Rachel Chembury and Mary mm-hmm. and Marianne McGuinn and then Marnie Greco, who I've worked with recently. He's actually been off doing knowledge translation and stuff who will be coming back to us because we got another grant. But Mani did all this beautiful work around the implementation science of what we've discovered in mm. in disordered breathing and spinal cord injury. So yes, that's why I like students, is because they're really they're fun to work with, and we get to do cool stuff.
0: Yes, yeah, that sounds wonderful, and I know some of those fantastic students you've had who are now, of course, no longer students but colleagues, and not only your colleagues but with the rest of us as well. Um, many presentations at these course meetings have come from your group. And it's not usually you providing it, but all your students providing wonderful presentations. And then if we're lucky, we go off to a dinner um, <laughs> and have amazing food in the Dutch countryside and in Istanbul. I've been very lucky, David, to work with you. Um, okay. Now, what else? You've spoken about some of the direction that uh-huh. I guess is still your current research and some of the outcomes that have been exciting. But what about your personal re- current research? What, what's particularly exciting you now about um, outcomes of your research?
1: So as I say, I'm not, I don't only work in spinal cord injury, I work in, in a lot of neuromuscular disorders. So we were very lucky recently. we got a large medical research future fund grant to look at an alternate model of care in motor neurone disease for 20, or oh, six years now, I think. I've been running a motor neurone disease cohort study here in Victoria. So motor neurone disease, I'm sure many people will know, has quite a lot of phenotypic uh, differences. It's lumped together, but there's a whole bunch of different presentations and different rates of progression. And um, we've been looking at the effect of non-invasive ventilation on survival within those phenotypes. We published a study a couple of years ago, which was 20 years' worth of data, and we're about to update it to take it out to 25 which showed that the surviving benefit you get from non-invasive ventilation is in a cohort study, it's not a randomised control trial, but it's 13 months in a disease that has a median survival overall of two to five years. The best drug we have for motor neurone disease in terms of improving survival is a thing called Reazol, which in fact has been trialled in, and I think there's still current trials going on in spinal cord injury.
0: Yes, that's right
1: yeah um, and but result really gives you two to three months of benefit in terms of survival, whereas non-invasive ventilation gives you a median improvement in survival in those that can tolerate it of 13 months.:
0: that's fantastic.:
1: I know yet yet we also know from the from the national population data and it's not hugely dissimilar around the world, only 19 percent of people with motor neurone disease get NIV, so it's funded through various means everywhere in the country, but there's this massive implementation science failure. I had another PhD student here, a guy called Liam Hannon, who's a respiratory and sleep physician, and he did this beautiful piece of work where we randomised people with motor neurone disease to either get set up on NIV by the clever physios who, who do the clinical work, not me, they don't really let me do patients anymore, I think I'm a hazard to shipping or something like that. But um, people get set up during the day on non-invasive ventilation. This is kind of standard model of care. But what we do as a unit is we bring people back a couple of weeks later and tweak their settings uh, with a full overnight sleep study. Now, we think that adds value, but, of course, it's incredibly burdensome for the person living with motor neuron disease, same as getting somebody with a spinal cord injury into a sleep lab. Like, it's a really big deal. Mm. For the lab, for the person, for their family, for their carers, all that kind of stuff. It's real pain. So what we wanted to test was whether that overnight tweaking helped. So half of the group came into the lab and we did nothing. We just recorded it. And the other half came in and we tweaked the, the settings. Now we did this in all comers, not just people with motor neurone disease, but, but over half of the group had motor neurone disease. And what we found was that in those people who used, who had the overnight sleep study, a greater proportion of them became adherent with their therapy. So they moved from less to four hours a night to more than four hours, and uh, smaller proportions um, went from above four hours to below four hours, which can be what happens over time. In 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 the group where we brought them in to do a sleep study, and And four hours is the magic amount of ventilation you need to use in motor neurone disease to improve survival. And in in spinal cord injury, it's the same kind of amount for improvements in sleepiness and those sort of things. So what we have is something that is a single-site study that showed that we could probably improve the biomarker of interest. So the biomarker of interest in this stage, in this case, is usage. Like it's the end organ expression of the right coordination between the device and the person with the disorder. It's the, the evidence that the value proposition they make every night when they decide, am I going to put this darn thing on my face or not? Uh, they decide, you know, yes, tonight it's worth it, and that's evidence by using it for more than four hours. So in, in my mind, it's like it's the perfect biomarker. We've shown it's associated with outcomes, and now we just got uh, funding to test it in, in, in every state in Australia, apart from Taddy, to see if we can replicate this in about 250 people. So that's kind of exciting. It's terrifying because it's another multi center randomised controlled trial. And after the last one that I, that I did that had um, 11 sites, which you know all about because you were on my data safety monitoring board. Indeed. So I had a little lie down and, and now I've got back up again and I'm going to try it again. So that's very exciting.
0: And that, of course, provides you with your plans for the future in case you run out of other things to do, because I think this will keep you going for a while. And I imagine you still have more PhD students wanting to come and work with you. Yeah, yeah,
1: I'm very lucky. I've got um, uh, somebody who's probably about to submit in the next two weeks. Her name is Nicole Shears, and she's done a beautiful randomized controlled trial of lung volume recruitment versus nothing for three months in people with neuromuscular disease wow um so we'll she's presenting those data the first time they'll see the light of day will be at the online european respiratory society meeting in a few weeks it's very exciting and so it'll be the first time there's ever any prospective longer-term evidence or not that because i could tell you but then i'd have to kill you uh, as to whether or not lung volume recruitment has meaningful effects in uh, in the people who use it. So this is like a bagging circuit that you use
0: to take a deeper breath. And it will be very interesting to find out the results when it is in the um, open area. So if we get back then to spinal cord injury yep. and breathing issues, yep, and particularly breathing issues, in the acute period, but also perhaps in the chronic group who then present late with respiratory failure. What do you see to be potential fields for for future research?
1: So Marnie, who did her PhD with me and as being an implementation scientist, so she's coming back to work with us um, on that MRFF grant to do the implementation science arm of that study. About a third of that is about identifying the barriers and facilitators to the models of care and what we need to do from a policy point of view to fix it because 19% of a life-saving therapy is an unacceptable use rate. We wouldn't tolerate that if it was a drug. But I don't know why we put up with it because it's a device. So as well, she has a well-developed um, postdoctoral plan around implementation science specifically for sleep disordered breathing and spinal cord injury. So we've done, again, New South Australians are legends. There's been beautiful work done looking at alternative models of therapy for um, uh, how one might implement sleep apnea treatment. So not everybody will know who's on the who's listening to this is that in Australia and, and in many places, the model for getting your sleep apnea treated is you have to go off, a, like it's a specialist test. You see your GP, um, you, you go in and, and your wife and you talk to the GP and she describes you having long periods of no breathing, you're overweight, you've got a really big neck, um, you're tired all the time. And um, the current model of care requires that you then go off and see a respiratory and sleep physician who can order this specialist test and get you a device. There's been some great work done in South Australia and elsewhere in the world to show that alternate models where you can have screening um, uh, that identify people with kind of almost guaranteed severe, moderate to severe sleep apnea can just go straight off and get treated. They don't need to go through all these, jump through all these hoops. Marty's developed some really nice work, some from her PhD, which was published in Thorax, um, which has shown that we can do the same thing in spinal cord injury. She built a prediction model that's got a, a few little tweaks to make it spinal specific, but it's got really good sensitivity and specificity in it. The workshop she's leading at the ISCOS conference um, is, is about those spinal units around the world who worked out ways to just get on with it and treat people um, in-house. So the workshop that Marty is going to present at uh, at ISCOS is looking at alternate models for how spinal units can just get on with it and just treat people with obvious sleep-disordered breathing without having to go through the hassle of getting them into a sleep lab, getting them seen by specialists, Um, There are lots of ways we can look at patient-reported outcomes and, as I said, uh, usage as really meaningful markers of whether or not the therapy is worthwhile. So we we want to build up that. I'm really interested in that translational space. And then I want to loop back around to some of the discovery work, Um, redo one of the drug trials we tried, a couple of other things. Nicole's work will have relevance for people with longer-term spinal cord injury, I suspect. Yeah. Yeah. So, you
0: know,
1: I I probably won't be bored, mate. I probably won't be
0: bored. I think think that's wonderful and it sounds great. Now, all we need is a mask that people will wear as well because when you're a Tetra and you're wearing a mask that becomes uncomfortable in the middle of the night, you may not be able to take it off or adjust it. So... um, Hopefully, you'll find somebody to do that as well because I've had patients who've only walked their CPAP every second night when they have somebody sleeping over. So that can still be a major problem. David, that's just been such a wonderful discussion of what you started with and where you started and where you and some of the people you've worked with are heading in the way of looking after our patients who have sustained a spinal cord injury or impairment for whatever reason and are in the acute phase, but that then leads on to chronic issues. So I was really thrilled that you agreed to talk with me today and I look forward to introducing you and uh, asking you questions at the ISCOS meeting as well. So thank you.
1: Oh, you're most welcome. It's been, it's
0: been lovely. So friends and listeners, we have had a very interesting discussion David Berlowitz and I talked about his interest in acute respiratory physiotherapy and how that led to his work in sleep disordered breathing and sleep apnea in patients with spinal cord injuries, but also about the other research that he's been involved in, the research that his PhD students have had and his work in the future that encompasses some really interesting discovery and options for people with motor neurone disease, as well as looking at how we can perhaps assess and treat our patients with suspected obstructive sleep apnea in the spinal units rather than sending them off to a sleep lab before we institute treatment. Thank you all for listening to another episode of SCI Care, What Really Matters. I'm Ruth Marshall and I've been your host. We have all the relevant links discussed in this episode in our show notes. We also have information on how to register for our upcoming virtual conference, that's the 59th annual conference of the International Spinal Cord Society, which is taking place in early September. So if you haven't registered as yet, please do take a look and consider registering. Until then, please do subscribe and we look forward to bringing you more on SEI care and what really matters.